Okay. Good morning, everyone. Good evening to those uh, for whom that is the more appropriate greeting. Welcome back to Rabbi Silver's class on Genesis. This is the penultimate session for this term, um, penultimate session of this class. We, we still have other classes uh, throughout the week, uh, but we will have to take a break for Pesach, whether we want to or not, but hopefully uh, we do want to, and Drisha has lots of programming coming up to help us uh, get a little more, if not excited, um, then at least a little more involved uh, with the feelings of the Pesach season, starting today at noon with the annual Rappaport Memorial Lecture, which is on a, a Pesach week theme, we'll say. So I know that we already have over 100 folks signed up for that. Uh, if you are not signed up, please feel free to join in. Um, but for this class, I would like to, again, remind everyone here on Zoom, when I send you an invitation to become a panelist, that does not obligate you to do anything, but it does allow you into the room so that you can show us your face on camera, if you would be so kind, and it enables you to mute and unmute yourself during our periods of question, answer, discussion, without needing to seek additional permission from me. If you continue to reject, the invitation to become a panelist, I will get the picture eventually. I am not doing it to annoy you, I'm doing it to give you an opportunity. Um, so of course, you're also welcome to post questions and comments in our chat here. If you're joining us on Facebook Live, post your questions and comments right below the video in the comment section. And if you're joining us on Drisha Live, hello, we're glad that you're learning with us. So the text for this class is still in the Tanakh. So you are, of course, welcome to use your most beloved physical book if you have one available at hand and easily navigable for you. Otherwise, I will do my best to keep the pertinent text up on screen for your convenience. Without further ado, Rabbi Silver, please. Thank you, Noah. Okay, so let's just pick up where we left off last time. Um, we've completed, or one never completes, but we've uh, read through all of chapter 34, the story of Dina. Um, one of the one of the issues that we raise, the text raises it, is what is the viewpoint of the narrator of the Torah itself? What position does the Torah take about the various characters and behaviors of those characters in chapter 34? So the position that I took was that the Torah um, does not particularly take anybody's side. The Torah, I think, has ample criticism raises questions about all the characters in the story. Um, each one has something to say about it in a positive sense, and each one can be looked at with a critical eye as well. Uh, the very end of the chapter, chapter 34, the very end of the chapter, we have Yaakov uh, admonishing specifically two of, his, two of his sons, Shimon and Levi, that's in the next to last verse of chapter 34, so he says to them, which is a very powerful word, um, you have sullied me, you have dirtied me, you have uh, betrayed me, perhaps. And he puts it in terms of the potential consequences of their behavior, or their action, which was to massacre the town of Shechem. And he said, you have endangered me and my family. He does not 
directly say you did the wrong thing. He puts it in terms of the consequences. And their response, either to him directly, they said to Yaakov, I don't think it, the better reading, I think, is they said to themselves, by Yomru, they said perhaps about Yaakov or about the situation, should he, presumably Shem, be allowed to treat our sister like a prostitute? Uh, however, the ambiguity of who is the he is interesting. It could be Shechem and also Yaakov. In other words, Yaakov, through his, through his, through his criticism, through his um, seeming lack of concern for our sister, and the word Achotene was a very important word here. It's their sister. Um, he's, his behavior suggests that she's, you know, that she's a, still kind of a tramp, prostitute, or whatever. So they, there's a response, and they actually get the last word in the chapter, which has led people like Sternberg to presume that the Chumash takes their side. I don't believe that's the case. I do believe that it takes no one's side, not Yaakov's either. Question, of course, is whether Yaakov's, and the his point being that they're, they're taking the high moral ground. They're saying, we did, we did the right thing, despite the consequences, whatever they may be, you do the right thing. And Yaakov's critique of them is put in terms of consequences. It's gonna be a bad outcome. Rather than saying you did the wrong thing, I, one can question whether that actually is true. It is, it is certainly true, that's what he says, that you, but the question is what achartemoti means. Is achartemoti means simply, you've made me look bad, you sullied me, in that you've endangered me and my family which is an interesting position to take. You, yes, you've saved one person at the expense potentially of many others. Okay, you could say that's simply a, a um, utilitarian argument. You could also claim it's not, it's a moral argument that you don't save the one at the expense of the, of the greater. That's an interesting question. But my, I question whether achartemoti means that, whether achartemoti is limited to the consequences, whether achartemo means you betrayed me, period, you've misbehaved, and on top of that, you've also endangered the family. Now, later in the Chumash, when Yaakov blesses his children at the end of Sefer Breshit, he includes all of the children, but he, he does say about Shimon and Levi, they are achim. He starts with Shimon v'Levi achim, chapter 49. It's interesting, he calls them achim. Shimon v'Levi achim, they are brothers, which maybe plays off the whole story over here, which they called Ache Dina. It says that Shimon and Levi on the third day, by Yehush Nebedei Yaakov, in verse number 25, 25, yes, Shimon Dina's brothers. So it puts them in terms of brothers. They are the brothers who unite to defend their sister. And the last word of the chapter is Achotenu, our sister our sister. And when Yaakov uh, blesses all of his uh, sons in chapter 49, in chronological order, first with Ruben, and then Shimon and Levi, he gives them a joint blessing. Shimon v'Levi Achim, chapter 49, verse number five, Shimon v'Levi Achim, he actually blesses them together. One might say it's not much of a blessing, it's a critique, but he, he includes them, but he calls them Achim. But their weapons are tools of lawlessness. I don't want to be included in their council or their assembly. 
ki biapam harguish uvirtsonam ikbushar. Because um, in their anger, <coughs> they slay uh, a person. And when they please them, they maim an ox. And I think that over here, and he, he could, the next verse is, Aurora Pam Kiyaz, scroll down, Aurora Pam Kiyaz, cursed be their anger, Bevratam Ki Kashata, and their wrath, again, their anger is relentless. I will divide them. Achakem Vafitzem be Israel, they're dangerous when they're together. I will scatter them in Israel, which is what happens later in the Chumash, where Shevet Levi is separate from the other tribes. And Shimon in the Chumash almost disappears. So Yaakov's critique, or what might call even a curse of sorts, does happen later in the Chumash. But what's interesting is that he doesn't curse them, he curses their anger. Having said that, the point is, and here yeah, it's an important point about their anger, it's pretty clear in the Chumash <coughs> that one of the defining moments in Sefer Breshit, in fact, in Jewish history, is the story of Joseph and the sale of Joseph. The, first, the thought of killing Joseph and then the ultimate sale of Joseph. It's clear that in the story of the sale of Joseph, the brothers who are the leaders in killing at first and then selling Joseph or, the, or well, he gets sold. But the idea of killing Joseph was, they said one spoke to the other, but we know that Judah, Ruvain tries to save Joseph and Judah suggests they sell Joseph. That's son number one and son number four. So son two and three are the ringleaders in terms of the attempted murder of their brother, Joseph. So the point is that the anger could be over here in the story of Shem, one might, one might justify what they did, although it does seem quite excessive, but it's the same anger that, and, and the emphasis on Achotenu, our sister, our sister, Achedinah, that these two who are, who are brothers, they're the main culprits, the attempted murder of their brother. So once again, I think the Chumash, I, I don't think we should necessarily presume that Yaakov's statement to Shimon and Levi is purely pragmatic. Achartem in the sense that Lahavisheni, but rather Achartem Oti, period, and in addition, it took this particular form, but the uh, behavior is a dangerous behavior and it plays out in many, many different ways. Uh, in any event, so the, the argument, the, the claim that I was making, and I stick to it, is that the Chumash in, in the story of Dina parcels out its, uh, its criticisms. There's nobody who's, who's, it's not black and white, nobody. Not the villain Shem, because on the other hand, he loves her, he does seem to love her, speaks tenderly, will, is willing to do anything to make it right, sounds that way. On the other hand, Shem and Hamar, uh, question is when they, they're selling their story to, when they're trying to influence Yaakov and the brothers to permit Dina to marry Shem, they say one thing, but they're trying to convince the people of Shem to circumcise themselves, the men to circumcise themselves, they have a very different story will be able to co-opt them and take them over, et cetera. So in that sense, one could see the town of Shem, which bears the same name as the person Shem, as somehow accomplices after the fact, one might say. That's how Sternberg reads it. And Sternberg thinks the Torah takes their, 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 their side, which of course I don't. And now we come to Shimon Levi and the brothers. 
Now, in this in the chapter, actually, the Chumash does distinguish Shimon and Levi from the other brothers. Shimon and Levi are the ones who kill the people of Shem. The question is, are Shimon and Levi participants in the other piece of it, which is taking the spoils? That's to me very unclear. I would say yes, but Yaakov singles them out because of the killing of, of, of the killing. Um, in any event, uh, just wanted to briefly look at a story that we've alluded to several times, which is deeply connected to the story of Dina. There are several stories in the Bible that are deeply connected to the story of Dina, but the one that's most obvious is the story of Amnon and Tamar in, in Sefer Shmuel in, chap, in 2 Samuel chapter 13. Just for a moment, we can't get into that in any detail, but in the story of Amnon and Tamar, casts a light upon our story. The story of Amnon and Tamar, in short, is that this story is chapter 13 of 2 Samuel, Shmuel Bet, follows chapter 12, obviously, chapter 12 and chapter 11 of the story of David and Bathsheba. So David and Bathsheba are chapters 11 and 12, and Amnon and Tamar is chapter 13. That's important, important to note when you're studying Shmuel. But in any event, in chapter, in the story of Amnon and Tamar, it's like this. This chapter begins by telling us in the very beginning that David, who's an aging king at this point, has two sons. He has more than two, but for our purposes, he has two main sons. One is named uh, Avshalom, Avshalom, and the other is Amnon. Amnon is his oldest son. In the biography early, it says he's the oldest. Avshalom is the third oldest. The second son, the second oldest is irrelevant. For, for other reasons, he's not in stories. But you have son number one. Essentially, these are the two potential successors to David. Amnon being the oldest, Avshalom being second. And Avshalom has a sister. She's his full sister. They share a mother and a father. The father is David. And Amnon, Ben David, as he's called in verse number one, is the half-brother of Tamar. The sister is named Tamar. The half-brother is Amnon. The full brother is Avshalom. Now, we can't get into all the details of it, but to make, to just to jump ahead in the story, Amnon becomes infatuated with, this, with his half-sister. And the half-sister stays inside the palace. She doesn't leave the palace. She stays in the palace. And Amnon can't have access to Tamar. We don't know why he wants access. If he wants to talk to her, convince him, whatever it is, he wants to sleep with her, whatever it is, we don't know yet. So in the story, he, he's, he's, he becomes infatuated with her and he's, he becomes sick. He can't imagine how he can get access to Tamar. That's how the story begins. So he has, if you just scroll down, he has a friend named Yonadav. Yonadav is his friend, also a relative. He's a son of David's brother. So he's a cousin. He's very smart. So he, he, says, he says to Amnon, what are you upset about? I'm in love with my sister. I'm in love with Avshalom's, I'm in love with Tamar, the sister of my brother Avshalom is what he says. The, um, the uh, point over here in the story, and we can't get into the story, it's, uh, but the point is that in the book of Shmuel, and this is a very important point, book of Shmuel is about people, it's a story about people. 
And it's also a story about politics. In other words, Avshalom and Amnon are not simply involved over here because of Tamar, but Avshalom and Amnon are the two potential successors to King David, the oldest son and the third of, essentially the next oldest son, because son number two doesn't count for other reasons. So therefore, there's also political. And we know in the book of Shmuel, in the beginning of Kings, that taking, for example, the kings, sleeping with the king's consort, the king's concubine, the king's daughter, the king's mistress, whatever, uh, is a political act, not just a, a, a social act, but a political act. So that's the, that's the complication in the story over here. That's an important complication. In short, what Yonadov says to advice he gives to, 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 to his uh, cousin is pretend you are sick, which is not difficult because actually he is sick. He's, he's infatuated and he, he sort of loves sick, one might say. So pretend you're sick and if you scroll down, you'll see and ask, right, lie down, keep going down and speak to your father, speak to, King, speak to David, King David, and ask him to send you Tamar, your sister, to give you something to eat, to restore your, to restore your spirits, to restore your health, right? And you, so in other words, what Yonadav what says is, this is the, you, the way you get access to, to, uh, to, uh, to uh, Tamar. Now, what's interesting is that earlier in the chapter, it says that Yonadav is very smart, ish chacham ma'od. And the question is, what is the great wisdom over here? What, 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 what is the chachma here? He's very clever. What's so clever? Does he have to be a genius to figure this out? But the cleverness, and this is very important for the story of Amon and Tamar, the cleverness is to have the king send her. It's not just to get access to her, but the king sending her, sending Tamar to Amnon, suggests that the king is okay with whatever happens, that Amnon has the support of the king. And that's very important, especially when you talk about the political side. In other words, if in fact what the story is about is not just this infatuation with Tamar, rape of Tamar, but that is a political act. What it's saying is, I am in fact warding it over Afshalom, because Afshalom is his rival. The same way Afshalom will sleep later with his father's concubines as a political act. It's not a social act, it's a political act. So that's what happens in the story. So I'm known, let's, we, I can't go with the whole details. So let's scroll down quickly, keep, keep going. So David sends her, keep going, keep going, keep scrolling down, keep going, keep going. Well, a lot more verses, keep going down, 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 right? Keep going down, keep going down, I stop, fine. So then he, he brings her into the house and then he sends everybody away. And then he says, come into the room. And then he says, sleep with me. And she tries to talk him out of it. He grabs onto her. He says, at verse number 11, and she says to him, don't, don't, that's how chapter 34 began, right? Story of Dina. It says, verse number 12, which is word for word, basically, what you have with Dina, right? In chapter 34, it's exactly what it says. It starts with Inui. And then it says that the brothers came back and they heard what had happened. 
and they were very angry and they were sad. Let's find that verse. That's in verse number seven of chapter 34. Chapter 34, verse number seven. It's almost word for word. So verse number seven, the Dina story finds its, finds its way into the story of Amon and Tamar. Okay, let's get back to Amon and Tamar. So it's word for word, essentially, right? Now we go back to chapter Shmuel. Just keep going back. And then she says to him, well, it's a terrible thing, she says in verse 13, will, will I carry my cherpati? That's another Dina word. You'll be like one of the Nivalim. Speak to our father, he will not refuse me to you. Okay, so that's a very interesting verse because they're half, they're, they're related. It's a, it's a half, it's a half sister, half brother, which in the Chumash is a, one of the forbidden, uh, it's, a, it's in the list of the various prohibited relationships. It's incest in the Chumash. Here it sounds like it's not a problem. Interesting question, leave it aside. In any event, he doesn't listen. He rapes his sister, keep going. Then he throws her out. He, he, he hates her with a great hatred afterwards. And he says, leave, get out, he says. So then in verse number 16, she says, this is worse than the other thing you're doing. Don't, don't throw me out. He refuses to listen. He calls his young man in verse number 17. He throws her out of the house and he locks the door. Fine. That's the first part of the story. And then she's wearing a, a ketonet pasim, a Joseph-like tunic, whatever, and she tears it, and she walks around and she's crying. And meanwhile, keep reading, keep going, keep going. So Avshalom speaks to her, he says to her, be, be silent, and she's, she, she remains in the house of, she remains forlorn in the house of her brother Avshalom. Keep going, keep going, scroll down. King David heard, was very angry. But he does nothing. So David does nothing. Then it says that Avshalom doesn't speak to Amnon for a long time. We may Ravi because he hates him, because he had violated his sister Tamar. Two years later, in verse 23, right? Avshalom is, is shearing the, the sheep. It's always a festive time. He invites the royal family. He goes to the king, says, Please, King, King David, please come to my party. So David says in the next verse, keep going down. David says, no, I don't want to. It's too difficult if I come. He insists. He, he, no, I'm not coming. He gives him a blessing. So Avshalom says, if you're not going to come, how about, how about Amnon? Send Amnon. He's in your place. So the king says, why do you want him? Maybe the king suspects something. So, so Avshalom, keep going down. Insists, urges him down. He sends Avshalom, he sends Amnon, right? Sends Amnon. And Avshalom instructs his attendants when Amnon is merry with wine, kill him. Don't worry about it. In verse 29, they do exactly that. They kill Amnon. All the other members of the family, all the brothers run away. And then in verse 30, a rumor reaches David that Avshalom has killed all of the king's sons. Not one is remaining. Keep going down. Keep going. King tears his garments. And then Yonadab speaks up in verse 32. Yonadab says, no, it's a false rumor, he says. Don't pay attention to that. He only killed Amnon. He was angry about the business 
with Tamar, the business that he had violated his sister Tamar. And sure enough, they all come back and they all again tear their garments. Avshalom runs away. That in brief is a summary of chapter 13 of 2 Samuel, the story of Amnon and Tamar. Now, let me just briefly make a point about Amnon and Tamar. When you think about the story of Amnon and Tamar, you could actually line up the characters. Dina in the Tamar story is Tamar. Dina was the one who was Bayaneha Inui with Dina, Inui with Tamar. So they're similar in that respect. They're the victims in both stories. The bad guy, Shem, is the bad guy in Dina's story. And his, uh, his parallel in the story of Amnon and Tamar is, of course, Amnon. So Amnon is Shem. Then you have Yaakov, who does nothing in the story of Dina. And the parallel in the story of Amnon and Tamar is David, who does nothing. And finally, you have the Shimon and Levi, and maybe the other brothers as well, but as a Shimon and Levi who killed, who killed Shem and Hamar in the town of Shem. And the parallel is, of course, Avshalom, who kills his brother or commands that his brother Amnon be killed. So the characters line up perfectly well. There's one character who doesn't line up in the story, which is very interesting, and that is Yonadav, the advisor who appears at the beginning of the chapter and the end of the chapter. He has no parallel in the story of, of Dina. I'm not getting, I can't get into that now. It's in my book that I talk about that. But the, um, but the other four characters obviously are parallel and the language is similar. Inui, Nevala, Oyasachem Yisrael, Cherpa. The language is drawn to some extent from the Dina story. Now the question is, what does the story of Amun and Tamar through this particular prism, there are many prisms to read the story, but the prism of Amun and Tamar, what does it say about the Dina story? That's the question. The question is obvious. And the answer I believe is, part of the answer is the following. When you think about the story of, of uh, Amnon and Tamar, which of course is neither about Amnon nor about Tamar, not really about either one of those two. It's about two other people. It's about David and Avshalom, which of course is at the heart of the Book of, Sh of, Book of Shmuel. When you think about, for example, Tamar and Dina, they're not the same characters. Because the story of Dina, uh, Dina is, one might say, even a prop. D Dina is not a person in the story. She's a, a human being who's been violated, yes. But we have absolutely no idea beyond that of how she feels. This guy's in love with her now. Does she want to stay with him? Does she want to leave? What is her feeling? Did she resist in any way? We have absolutely no idea. The Chumash never tells us. Unlike the story of Tamar, in the story of Tamar, first of all, she tries to talk him out of, out of it. Two different occasions, before and after, she tries to talk him out of what he plans to do. And on top of that, it says when he grabbed onto her, he says, he was more powerful than she, so it would appear she actually tries to fight him off. She's a real person in the story. She tries to tell him the right thing to do. She has advice. 
she struggles with him, okay, he overpowers her. But that's very important because since you, when you have a, um, when you have a person in the story, right? Then the, then the, the, the villain is much more villainous. In other words, the, the, the impression the reader gets when you read the story of Amnon and Tamar is that Amnon is a very bad guy. And when you think about it in terms of Shem, he's a very, very bad guy. Because in the story of Shem, what the Chumash has presented us with, with Shem is somebody that after the fact, sounds like he wants to make it right. It sounds like he actually is in love with this, with this, with this person, with, with, with Dina. That's what it sounds like. Speaks tenderly to her, he loves her, is willing to pay any price, etc. In the case of Amnon, it's exactly the opposite, because afterwards he actually throws her out. And even though she begs him not to do that, she says, this will be even worse. Sounds strange to our ears, but in the Chumash, the punishment for the rapist of the unmarried woman, he has to marry her and keep her his entire life. He can never get rid of her. He has to care for her, or he has to provide for her his whole life. That's the punishment. That's the way the Bible presents it. And here he throws her out. So in other words, it makes Amnon a much worse person, person with no redeeming qualities. There's other evidence as well. Those, that's the first, those two characters are different. They're similar, but we know the differences. And now we come to the two main characters, to David and to Avshalom. In the case of David, you have David and Yaakov. Each one does nothing. And the question is, who comes off worse in the story? Is David worse or is uh, Yaakov worse? And it strikes me, without question, that actually David is a lot worse for the following reason. Because in the case of Yaakov, true, it's his daughter. But the story of Dina begins with the verse, that Dina went out. Whether going out is problematic or not problematic, it's a separate question, but she went out. But in the case of Tamar, in the case of Tamar, David sends her. In fact, that exactly was the advice of Yonadab, have the king send her to you. When the, since the king is sending her, that gives the impression that the king actually, whatever happens, that the king supported it. And even if he doesn't support it, he's certainly part of it. He can't say, I don't want to get involved. It's not my problem. Of course, it's your problem. You sent her there. So in the case of Dina, he didn't send her. Je Yaakov does send Yosef later. He sends Yosef to, to the brothers. And to that degree, not that, he, not that his intention was that Yosef would get hurt. He wants to make peace. But the point is, he can't actually say in the story of, of David can't say, I'm not involved. You are involved. You're an accessory. You sent her. Okay, you were misinformed, whatever. It doesn't matter. Whatever your intentions may be. So David's inaction is problematic. And now we come to the main person in the story, which is Avshalom. Well, we're studying Shmuel, we spend a lot of time in Avshalom. Avshalom is not Shimon and Levi. He's much better than Shimon and Levi, and for multiple reasons. First of all, he's much better than Shimon and Levi because Amnon is worse than Shem, because Tamar is more uh, of a sympathetic character, 
because David, who should do something, does nothing. And in the story of Amnon and Tamar, there are two important facts about Absalom. The first is he waits for two years. He's waiting for David to do something. David does nothing. Then what choice does he have? He's waiting for David to do the right thing, to punish Amnon in some way. David does nothing. But the second point, and this is a very important point, and this is evidence to me that the book of Shmuel is consciously playing off the story of the story of the story of uh, of, uh, of Dina, because the initial the, the initial rumor. Why? Why do we have that part about the rumor? They hear that David hears a rumor. He's killed all of, all, all of my sons. Oh no! Says Yonadav, he didn't kill all of your sons. He um he only killed Amnon because Amnon you know molested uh, 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 Tamar. But what is the what was the point of the rumor? So the point of the rumor is simply were he like were he like Shimon and Levi, he might have killed all of the sons. He might have he holds David responsible. In fact, he invites David to come initially. Oh, you can come send Amnon in your place. One can only wonder if David had gone, what would have happened to David? It's a good question. We know later he tries to kill David. But my point is. He's Absalom in the story kills the one villain. He doesn't kill anybody else. And the, the text emphasizes that by having the initial rumor, which would put him in the same boat as Shimon and Levi. That's not what he does. So I'd say two things. He waits for two years. Now, why is he waiting for two years? One could have multiple suggestions about that. I believe he waits for David to do something. And it, because, why do I say that? Because later in the book of Shmuel, we have a similar story. After Absalom is brought back, but not brought back to David, Absalom flees the country. He's brought back by Yoav. And then he's waiting for David to, to, to accept him back, but David refuses to do that. David places him under house arrest. Absalom is waiting. Nothing happens. He waits for two years. And then he sends people to burn Yoav's field. So Yoav comes to, why did you burn down my field? So I'm waiting for two years, he says. Nothing's happening. Listen, bring me to the king. If he kills me, he kills me. But I want to see the king. I want to be under house arrest. I came back to, 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 to be accepted by the king. Waits for two years. That's his time frame, two years. So I believe in both cases, he's waiting for someone to do what he thinks is the right thing. And when it doesn't happen, he takes action. So this is actually, this is actually very interesting because it's a wonderful example of how a later story plays off an earlier story, but also of how the latest story, uh, at least through the prism of Sefer Shmuel, you could, you could say there are many different ways to read story, but, but at least the book of Shmuel is reading that story in a certain way. And of course, in the story of, of, of Amnon and Tamar, it's all about David and, his, and, and Absalom. That's what the story is actually about. I maintain that in the, in the story of David and Absalom, that Absalom actually in that chapter is a, uh, is, a, is a hero and his behavior in that chapter would suggest he's the perfect candidate to become the next king. Especially since Amnon is certainly not and Absalom is caring for his sister. But caring for the sister, okay, he, he, he is a killer, 
So was David. But the point is, but he, he waits, and if anybody ever deserved it, it's got to be Amnon. The Torah compares rape to, uh, to, uh, to murder, by the way. So the point is, he is the right guy. And that is very important for the book of Shemuel because he's, this, he's the correct successor who never succeeds. But my, coming back to our study, which is the story of Breshit and the story of Dina, the story of Dina is not really about Dina. The story of Dina is about something else, which is, but what about Yaakov and Yaakov's sons? And we have to remember that Yaakov took a vow back in chapter 28 to build the bayat, to build the inclusive structure. And this chapter is about, takes us back to the difficulties in including everybody. Because in this chapter, two of his sons, certainly Shimon and Levi, son number one, son number two, and son number three, certainly are completely at odds with Yaakov. And furthermore, they seem to, or the Torah seems to emphasize, perhaps, that Yaakov's inaction, one of the factors may be that Dino Basileia, it's not Joseph, it's not Rachel's, now it's also a daughter. So it could be also a factor. It's a daughter and it's Leah's daughter. So the fact of the matter is that this raises the question, which is the critical question from here to the end of Sefer Breshit, which is this idea of building the house, of building the bayat, the difficulties attendant upon trying to build the inclusive structure, because the structure that Yaakov has built, because uh, of where Yaakov is coming from in his whole history, is a structure which has within it all kinds of frictions, all kinds of conflicts, all kinds of potential disruptions. And here we have right here in chapter 34, at the end of the chapter, we have a very bitter critique of Yaakov by two of his sons and Yaakov's very strong indictment of Shimon and Levi. That's what I wanted just to briefly bring in the story of Amnon and Tamar. It's actually, there's a lot more there as well, but up for now that's sufficient. So let me stop you and take any comments or questions, and then we'll move on to chapter 35. Uh, yes. Are you saying that if, if Shimon and Levi were the sons of, 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 of Rachel, uh, Yaakov would not have been as critical of them? I wasn't saying that so much. I was saying that <clears throat> it's very hard to know. No, I wasn't, but I wasn't saying that. I was saying that if Dina had been Rachel's daughter, or if Dina had been Don and not Dina, Yaakov might have acted differently. I mean, at the end of the day, he's blessing his, the, the bayits. I'm not saying the women aren't included, but it is a patriarchal book. He blesses his sons. He has other daughters, it would appear. So my point is twofold. The main point I was making is that the focus in the story is this Dina Batleya. We know that Yaakov favors Rachel. It's the woman he loved, and, and he favors Joseph. My point is that there's a very sharp contrast between Yaakov's uh, concern for Joseph on one hand and Yaakov's seeming lack of concern for Dina. Yaakov says oh, he will mourn Joseph till, till he dies, he says. Everybody's trying to console him. He can't be consoled. But I think there's a very striking contrast between his response in chapter 34 and, this, and the story of Joseph later. Now, they're different stories, obviously. But I do believe that, the, that this Dina Batleya and Ahe Dina and Shimon and Levi, that that factors into the story, which is all about he wants to build a bayat. 
me and my bias are going to be destroyed. And the reader says, Yaakov, your bias is being destroyed right now. <laughs> bias the in the, in, the, in the course of, uh, of, of, uh, of dissolving. That, that, that's my point. And that's the core issue over here. The same way the core issue in the story of Amnon and Tamar is succession. David is not young. David's old. Who's going to succeed him? There's no clear successor, actually. So Absalom ben David and Amnon ben David are clear potential successors, and one kills the other. That's the point. Anybody else? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's 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 striking that that um, Tamar is named Tamar. How does Tamar of the Book of Samuel relate to our Tamar in the book? That's. It's in my book. I talk about that. Obviously, they are related. I can't get into that. It would take too much time because I'm not really doing the story of Amnon and Tamar. What we're learning that we go into that. But clearly, I will just say that the following: the story of Tamar is the story of Tamar. I mean, we'll get to it. It's a couple of chapters later, chapter 38. But it's also basically the hero of the apart from Tamar is the hero. He's like the Rebbe, but the hero, the, the main character of, of, of the story of Tamar is, is Judah, Yehuda. And that the Yehuda of chapter 38 appears in two different forms. There's the early stage of Yehuda before Tamar engages him, and there's afterwards. And that the, the author of Shmuel takes the story of Yehudah with Tamar and breaks Yehuda down into two pieces. The early Judah, that's Amnon, basically, one who throws Tamar out of his house, right? kicks Tamar out of the house, that's Amnon. The Judah who confesses and is able to, to, to reconcile and becomes the catalyst to build the family, that's Afshalom in the story. So that's how it, among other things, how it uses that particular story. Susie, what do you want to say? Yep. Um, two things. One thing you said a few times that the, the Torah seems to be blaming everybody a little bit. Uh, do you include Dina in that? Because Chazal like to say, because if I take say Dina that she's a Yatsanid, that she goes right. out, that uh, that it might be partially her her fault also for going out. Right. When yeah, you know, we would That's look true. at it, goes out. She wants to see Benata Aretz. She wasn't going to see Benei Aretz. It's that you know. Right, right. So I I I, I was not focusing on Dina. What you said is true. That Vatetse Dina Batleya. Um, I would say. Look, what, what they're picking up on, apart from Vatetse, because in the case of Amnon and Tamar, Tamar stays inside the house. She, she has no access to her. She doesn't leave the house, you know? Um, I think what the what Chazal might be picking up on is not, is the Vatetse Dina, but Leah, Asher Yodav Yaakov, that the, what they're seeing, and I think it is well-founded, that that expression, batete dina bat Yaakov, who's born to Yaakov, they're thinking of the story where, where Leah goes out. She goes to Yaakov and says, sleep with me tonight because I have, I have, I have rented you out with the mandrakes of my, of my son. So they actually trade, Rachel and Leah trade Yaakov and from that, from those mandrakes, Dina is actually born. She's one of the three that's born. Um, the point is that um, they're connecting those stories. They're seeing Dina in light of Leia, and they see Leia's behavior is problematic. But, you know, of right. course, in that story, once again, everybody's problematic. But 
you know, Kisachar Sechartichah, I've rented you out. That's what this family has become. People, everybody is a commodity to be bought and sold. So I think they're picking up on that. But I was not focusing on Dina's uh, guilt of any sort. The main characters in the story I, would, I was focusing on is, on one end, well, of course, Shem. They're all connected because the more one person is guilty, the worse, you, the worse Amnon is, the better Tamar looks, the better Avshalom looks for killing him, you know? If, if he's basically a good guy who made a mistake, Amnon's not a good guy who made a mistake. He's a guy in the story with no redeeming qualities, zero. This is a bad person. So Avshalom's behavior from that perspective is much more worthy than, say, Shimon and Levi, who kill A, someone who, who regrets what he did, it would appear, and B, they kill the town people. Yes, they bear the same name. Yes, maybe they want to benefit from it. That doesn't make them all rapists. It makes them people that want to benefit after the fact from a, from, from a misdeed. Uh, and of course, they were, they, were, they were presented with this scenario by, by, by Hamar. So I'm saying this again. My short answer is I wasn't really dealing with Dina per se. No, I was not doing that. But the question is a good one. I'm sorry, but whether, whether the text faults or not is a good question. Um, that's a good question. Rabbi Silver, Rabbi Silver, there's yeah. the Vatetze Yaakov, which is the obvious, but he could not be Yoshev Ohalim forever, and all the turmoil and all the good stuff happens. Vatetze, one has to leave, you know, at some point. Right, but that's a different thing. He's, he's leaving there to run away, to find a wife. It's yeah. not the Vatetse per se, that's the problem. It's the Vatetse it's what she says. Right. Come to me tonight because I've rented you out. Mm-hmm. Which is a commentary, not just about Leah, but upon Yaakov's, it's, it's on Yaakov too. So Yaakov said to, uh, to Laban, I'll work seven years for Rach, tell me what are your wages? I'll work seven years for, for, for Rachel, your daughter. So the point is he, Yaakov, is the one who says that Leah is the, or Rachel is the payment for, for my labor, which is the way Laban functions. As, as they say about their father, he, he buys and sells. He's a traitor. And that's how Yaakov deals in the house of Lavan. It's very problematic. So it's not just Vatetse, the word. The word Vayetse, Vatetse appears many places, loads of places. And it's true. We're about to celebrate Yitzhak Mitzrayim. It's a good thing. But the fact is, you have to see where you're going and why you're going and what the context is. Yes. Anybody yeah, else? Like, yeah, I'd like to make a comment. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, when I read the story of Eliezer and Rivka, I see parallels in a strange way to the story of Dina, because Eliezer sees Rivka and gives her the nezem and the tzmidim, which is an act of acquiring a woman as, as, the, as the shaliach of, uh, of, of Yitzchak, so that in a way, he has acquired her as a wife before he's even talked to the family. It's only afterwards that he has to go to the family and, and take her. And, and then you have, certain, you have similar words. You have the word achosenu, and at the very end it's vayikach. You have similar words which are, in, in a strange way, um, parallel to the story of Dina. Because even after everything is done, they don't want to let her go. In fact, they would actually kill him if, if, if necessary. So he has to grab her after all this is agreed. 
And also the, the difference here is Nishalo is Pihanaro. It's the it's 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 in whereas in Bina, there's no such thing. Let's ask her. In Rivka's case, they ask her and she makes a decision. We don't know about Dina, but there is a similar word to me, and maybe I'm wrong, but it appears to me a, a, a type of uh, play on, on, on a different way of handling what occurs with Dina and, and Shechem. Well, I think they're opposite, actually. I think they're exactly diametrically opposite. It's, exactly. true, it's true that he gives her the rings, etc. Now, we, we put it in terms of engagement. I mean, that's a, perhaps that's a reading into the Torah, a rabbinic conception of, of, of Kedushin. But the fact of the matter is, it's only a designation. What he's saying is, he, gives, he's, he comes with gifts. He comes with 10 camel loads of gifts. He's going to negotiate with the family. He's not going to grab her. All the negotiation takes place with the family until the very end when they say, that, by Yikach, by, by Yikach. That was at the I very think, end. Yeah, fine. That's, that's what it is. You, you deal with the family and there's an arranged marriage. She's never met him. And he does leave with the family's permission. The family says, let's ask her what she wants. And, and she says, hey, where? And so at the end of the day, she makes the decision to go. That's for sure. But what you have is a very standard negotiation. It's, it's a negotiation. But the point is, he comes with all kinds of, of, of camels loaded with gifts. He has to convince them to let this daughter go on some long journey to meet some unseen man. He's very clever the way he does that. But I don't see the taking at all. I, it, they are marriage stories of sort, for sure. One is after the fact, and one is before the fact. And by the way, um, I'll mention something else that Sternberg said, which is very good. And that is just to criticize. I think his overall take is misguided, for sure. Um, but he makes some very good points. And here's a good point that he makes, that when the brothers say the last verse of chapter 34, shall we treat our sister as a zona? Okay. His point, that, the point that Sternberg makes is that, that when it appears that Yaakov is willing to go along with this idea that you'll give us our daughters, you'll live in the, come in the land, you'll do business with us. And from their perspective, what do you mean you do business with them? What is she, a prostitute? She, you, you give her money? No, it's, it's, that's, that's not right. In other words, Sternberg reads that. I think it's a good reading. He said, they're saying the complaint, which is against not just Shechem, but against Yaakov is, what do you mean you're willing to make this deal with them? Because it's a good business deal. Because it will give them their daughters, will dwell with us. You'll, you'll, you'll be able to write. You'll, you'll, you'll have access to, 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 their, to their possessions. That's how Shechem and Hamar presented to the family. But from their perspective, that's just the zona. So, that, so that's what he says. So that's, in other words, there are, no one was more aware of the fact that marriages have a, a, a material side to them. That's a, the, the, the very institution we call the, uh, the uh, ketuva is testimony to that. These are the obligations of the, most of them of the, groom to the bride, there's some, there's some reciprocal obligations as well. It's a contract. You don't want to reduce it to that, but it is in fact a contract and contracts are there to protect both sides. So there's no question, but, but you know, marriage is not the same as rape, that's all. It's, it's, it's different. And, and in the case of the yeah. servant, the, the, the Evan of Avraham, 
that's a contractual agreement. Yes, like, like every every agreement, there's a lot of negotiating going on. He's a wonderful negotiator. Um, wish I had this guy for Drisha. He's terrific, actually. Um, but the point is, uh, so the yes, they're similar in, this, in the sense that each case it involves uh, getting a woman for a particular man. That's true. But I don't see the, and maybe some of the language is parallel because they're similar scenarios in that sense, but I don't see them as parallel at all. Oh, is anybody else? I'm going to we'll move on. Yeah. Is there uh, um, a, 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 first of all, when he says, Vayomru He's, he, the, the, Vayomru is, I'm assuming, referring to Shimon and Levi. Yes. It's not referring to the other brothers. And what's striking is that Ruvain and Yehuda are silent, as is Jacob. And um, what, what seems to me is that there is a conflicting goal here. There's the goal of building the inclusive bayit, but there's also the goal of settling the land. And that when they say, they're struggling with the fact that uh, um, they're the beginning, they're beginning to take over the land of Canaan. And how do they solve this problem? And it's Shimon and Levi that say, no, the family is more important than settling the land. Um, also, um, uh, could I, if I can um, comment on you, I, I like that point very much um, because um, uh, Jacob's argument saying, oh my God, the, the, uh, the nations around us will come after us, uh, we'll be pariahs. Um, I mean, that's his fear and he's, he's very fearful of this. Um, after he limped out of the incident with, with the uh, Ish, he, and he heals a little in Sukkot and then he comes and he buys it chunk of land and now this happens to me and now look what you did and so everybody's going to pick on us but that never takes place it actually never happens that the other nations come after jacob and his nomadic family well, and that's the next story that, we'll, we'll see about that well, the but they, is why not is the question but but, but but no they you know they don't they do it to them whatever they do to themselves they do to themselves uh but 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 you don't read about <laughs> basically uh, around nations uh, ganging up on Jacob. In other words, what he feared because of Shimon and of his son's um, killing actions, what he feared never actually came to pass. That's true. It doesn't. But the question is why it doesn't. Well, we'll see. They don't, don't, don't have anything to do with any of the, the other people around or the other people don't have anything to do with them. They may have become pariahs in the area. We don't know. Right, but they're not attacked by but Alexander's no. but they're not attacked by anybody else. That's clear. He says they're going to attack me and they don't attack. That's right. But to that extent, he's not right. But they don't we'll see why they don't attack, though. The question is why they don't attack. It would appear for me that they might have attacked. He wasn't, I don't think his, his fears are are are, are ill-founded. I think he has something to worry about. And I think the Chumash more or less says that. It's true that it doesn't happen, but it's also true that it very well could happen. And we'll see as we continue. We'll see this story. Let's just continue a little bit. I'll leave time at the end for more comments and questions. Chapter 35. Let's begin 35. We'll see how far we can get. So now God speaks to Yaakov. We all remember that Yaakov had taken a vow 
in chapter 28, if you bring me back, says Yaakov, I will, in fact, build this rock that I placed down in chapter 28, shall become Beit Elohim, the house of God, right? So now he's told by God to go back. And God had mentioned this even earlier in chapter 31. I'm the God to whom you took a vow in Beit El. Go back to Beit El. Beit El, the house of God. He had put a one pillar there. This pillar shall become the house of God. And now God reminds Yaakov of his vow. So the question is, why is, why does Jacob have to be reminded? He did take a vow. And we all know when we take make commitments, especially a vow, we should uh, fulfill our promises. And Yaakov has to be told over here in the beginning of chapter 35, I think the answer is actually very simple because Yaakov's vow was, what Yaakov said in the vow in chapter 28, if you remember was, if you give me food to eat, you know, bread to eat, clothing to wear, and bring me back in peace to my father's house. But what Yaakov's concern is, his concern is, I'm not being brought back in peace because he thinks that a war is about to break out in which the chances of him being massacred, and he was worried about this earlier with Esau as well, but there's a very strong possibility that I'll be uh, attacked by the, the, the residents of the land. So when God says in chapter 35, go up to Beit El, what God is saying in effect is that I have, I'm keeping my promise, I'm, I'm fulfilling your vow, which was, you will, I will return in peace to my father's house. So God essentially is saying to Yaakov, don't worry about the, what you're worried about. They're going to attack you. I am protecting you. They're not going to attack you. And since, since you are protected, since you have peace, now it's time to go and fulfill the vow that you yourself took in chapter 28. That's how chapter 35 begins. And then we have Veshev Sham. Go up to Beit El. Go up to Beit El. Go up. You always go up to God's place. Go up to Beit El. Veshev Sham. And stay there. Remain there. That's an interesting statement, Veshev Sham. God could have said, go up to Beit El and bring the sacrifice. Go up to Beit El and fulfill your promise. But Veshev Sham is actually very interesting. Not just going, you're staying there for a while. Veshevsham. And I think Yaakov understands Veshevsham to be there, go to Beit El and be there. That Yaakov's understanding of God's command, Veshevsham, is be there as a be there means prepare yourself there for what you promised to do. I'm thinking of, for example, let's talk about going to a sacred place which requires preparation in the Torah. Well, the sacred place that requires preparation in the Torah, in which the Torah, it spends more time on the preparation than it does on what happens there, is obviously chapters 19 and 20 of the book of, of, the book of Shemot, Exodus, the receiving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. In the third month, they came to the mountain, right? God speaks to Moshe, and there's all kinds of preparations. Clean your garments, set boundaries around the mountain, three days, right, etc. separation of men and women, all those preparations. right, the three days of preparation. So we go to the holy place, something's going to happen there. You're going to 
like God said to Moses earlier in the book of Exodus, someday you'll come back and serve God on this mountain. Tavdun et the instructions of the Mishkan, it requires v'shevsham. You don't write, it doesn't happen right away. V'shevsham. And Yaakov understands this. And God says to Yaakov, fulfill the, fulfill the vow, build yourself an altar, to the, the God who appeared unto you, when you were running away from your brother, appeared to you as chapter 28. That's Jacob's dream, Jacob's vision. And it's very interesting that God describes that as the God who appeared unto you. Because when the Chumash presented back in chapter 28, we remember, it's put in terms of a dream. Jacob went to sleep, he had a dream. But now God says, I appeared to you then. I was appearing to you in that special place, Hamakom. That's where I appeared unto you. And we, the reader, think of that hamakom, and we remember the hamakom of the earlier hamakom of Book of Breshid, the story of the binding of Isaac. Hamakom, it appears there four times. And Abraham names the place Hashem Yireh. Hashem Yireh Hayom Bahar Hashem The place that God, is, God, is, God appears. God may be seen. God may be perceived. It further identifies Jacob's situation, Jacob's story of Bethel, with the story of the binding of Isaac, with the special place. So God says, listen, you made, you made a vow to the God who protects you and has been protecting you all along the way, all along your journey. When you, ever since you ran away from Asa, your brother, and implicitly God is saying, is that I continue to protect you, right? I'm not going to abandon you. That's what God had said to Jacob. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to stay with you. So there is peace. And if there is peace, you have an obligation. And that's how Yaakov understands Meshav because now in verse number two, So he instructs. Interesting, verse number two is very interesting. Whom does he instruct? First of all, Beito, his bayit. He has a bayit. He instructs his bayit. And kol asher imo, and those that were with him. Who was with him outside of the bayit? Hard to know, but we do know one thing. At the end of chapter 35, the sons of Jacob pillaged the city of Shechem, right? It says in verse 27, verse 28, verse 29, it says, B'nai Yaakov came across the corpses. They despoiled the cities by Yavozuair, the negative word, that had defiled their sister. They took their cattle, right? The cattle, the horses, etc., And all the, in the field and in the house, they took the city and the house. And then it says they took the women and children, believe it or not. Tapam v'nasham. They took the women and the children. So now we have, whatever happens to those people, we never know. But apparently they were part of Jacob's house. So Jacob spoke to his bayit, and with all that were with him, all that were with him presumably refers to all these new people they had picked up through the pillaging of Shechem. And what does he instruct all of them, the bayit and the people that are with him? Rid yourself of the foreign gods that are amongst you. Sounds like, 
sounds like these tzaddikim in their great uh, desire to avenge their sister, they also had decided to take some of this. We know they took the spoils of Shechem and amongst the spoils of Shechem, it would appear, is what we would call Avodah Zorah, alien gods. It's possible that some of these alien gods were picked up in the house of Lavan. We know that Rachel took Trophim. It certainly is possible. But the adjoining of the two stories, namely the pillaging of Shechem, property and people, and the existence in the house, in the bayit of Elohei Nechar, foreign gods, that would suggest that at least some of the foreign gods have been taken by from, from, from Shechem. There's further evidence of that, as we'll see in a minute. And I don't think it's just the foreign gods of the people that they picked up. And even if that's true, they haven't gotten rid of the foreign gods. So wherever they came from, whether they put them in their own pockets, whether they were in the pockets of the people they had taken from the city, that's an open question. But my point is, in looking back now at Shimon Levy and all the family, I mentioned several reasons why I believe strongly that the Torah condemns them on some level. It's not black and white, there is a condemnation. I mentioned three or four reasons. We can add this to, this is now four or five, because they took Avodah Zarah from there. So we, we can't speak of these people having the purest motives. Right? It's not, it's not about that. It's, it's complicated. They see a good opportunity to pillage the city, to take whatever they can take. They took Avodah Zarah. And later, actually, just a couple of verses later, it says they gave to Yaakov in verse number four. They took, it says, they gave to Jacob the foreign gods which they possessed, Asher Biyadam, and the Nizamim, the rings that were in their ears. Now here, two things are interesting about this. First of all, that rings, right? We know that rings are often used in, uh, in, uh, in uh, idolatrous practice. We know, this from the, um, we know this from the story, the war against Midian in the book of Bamidbar, or the golden jewelry they had taken which they have to dedicate to the temple. We know this in terms of the golden calf, right? Golden calf. Um, what does it say about the golden calf? It's also, right? What does it say over there? Let me just read that a second. What does Aaron say? Um, let me see what this is. Yes, chapter 32. They took it out from their ears. Verse ear. number three. Verse number two. Take off the golden rings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and daughters. So, and that's the golden calf. You have the story of Gidon as well. I mean, I don't, I don't want to belabor the point since it's obvious as anything that the rings actually, so there's the idols, and there's the rings which are connected to the idols, which are related to idolatry. It's actually something else very interesting about verse number four, small point. And that is that they gave to Jacob, it says, 
the foreign gods asher biyadam yetanizamim asher biyaznehem. Here the Chumash thing, there's a very clever point over here, which is the word biyadam, the word biyad x, that appears in many places in, in biblical Hebrew, in the, in the Talmud. Biyad often means under the control of, tachat yad paro, the control of, right? In the, in the Talmud, of course, biyadam means somebody you have control over something. Over, over a situation. If you, can, if you can do X, that gives you credibility, right? Because it's Biyado. You, I, I could believe me that I did it because I can do it. That's Biyado. But in this verse, in verse number four, it's interesting. They gave Jacob all of the foreign gods, Asher Biyadam. There, I think that the Chumash wants us to read Biyadam literally in their hands because of what follows. And the rings in their ears. So then we, we, the rings in their ears means literally in their ears. Unless it means rings that they could wear, earrings. But if it means in their ears, they took off their, right? As, Je, as, as Aaron says, take off the rings in the ears, right? So therefore, we then can read Biyadam, not just they possess them, they're actually holding on to them, which makes it even more problematic. It's not just they have idols somewhere in their closet or no, in their suitcases. It's in their hand, holding them. So get rid of those. You can't go to Beitel, to God's house, if there's a Vodazara. The expression in the Gemara is Tobel Vesheretz Biyado. You go to the Mikvah, you're holding on to Vesheretz. So it makes you impure. It doesn't work. You gotta get rid of the impurity. What does Jacob do with these things? What does Jacob do? He buries them under the terebinth, under the tree. Eilah means a tree. Sometimes Eilah, perhaps from the word Eil, maybe a sacred tree, maybe a tree that was worshipped, like an Asherah. But he takes the, he takes the idolatrous objects, he takes the rings, he weaves them in Shechem. Asherim Shechem. We don't want to take anything from Shechem. Shechem is problematic. We want to distance ourselves from Shechem. This is another... These, these verses, I think, it's not a report. It's a problematic nature of what they've done. It's not clean here. They, they went to Shrem, they took Avodah Zorah from Shrem. It's in their hands, it's in their ears. So, another evidence, I don't think we need more, more evidence, that the Chumash is not interested in, in simply whitewashing uh, Shimon and Levi or, or Jacob's sons in general. That whole behavior is problematic because if in fact, if in fact what your goal was to save your sister, you wouldn't want to take any, it's what, it's what Abraham said to the king of Sodom. I didn't do this for any kind of profit. I did it to save my nephew and I saved other people. I don't want to give the impression that I have mixed motives over here. I'm not interested in that. That would, that would, that would impute to me something that's not right. That would, that would, cast a negative light on what I did. I, I did it for the right reasons. Why well, you understand it? It's not the benefit. I don't want to take anything from you. Not even not even sroch now. Not the smallest piece of rechush. Nothing. And the same. But Abraham, but Abraham, Rabbi, but Abraham doesn't learn that lesson um, for a long time. He didn't learn it in Mitzrayim. 
Okay. He didn't learn it from Avimelech. He gets uh, a thousand shekel silver. I mean, that's astonishingly high to look so to cover the eyes of his of his wife. So, yes, Abraham says this to Avimelech, but their whole story is different. Avimelech and uh, he did the right thing vis-a-vis saving his brother, even though it's his nephew, he calls him Anashim Achim Anachnu. So, but but you know, Abraham, it takes him a really long time and he's okay. pretty bad. That's so fine. Long. Okay, I agree. Yeah. I totally agree, but that's not my point. I totally agree. My point is that when people, if you d- did an act which involves idolatry, pillaging, etc., etc., apart from the excessive violence, there is no way, and the Torah says they spoke for Mirma, there is no way to say that the Torah takes their side. That's complete madness. Nobody, nobody with two eyes could possibly read it that way. On the other hand, yes, they have a point, and Jacob doesn't come out snowing very good at the story either. Nobody does. And there's no reason to assume that the narrator, the biblical author, the Torah, God, or whatever you want to call it, has, is, is constrained by taking one side or another. The Torah is a free agent, and the Torah has zero interest in taking someone's side. There's plenty of blame to go around, and it's clear that the Torah is spraying the blame in every direction. The wrong, everybody is, no one comes clean out of the story, which in general is the story of the Chumash, and in general is the story of human beings. It's not black and white. That's what makes it a great book. It's not black and white. But in this case, the brothers are very problematic, without question. Anyway, let Perhaps. me, what, what, what time is it now? 11.13. Okay, let me, I have to stop there at this point. We take a couple of comments and questions. I want to remind everybody that at 12 o'clock we have the Rappaport lecture. Uh, Dr. Gaffney will be speaking. Hanan Gaffney is very interesting. And it's a pretty lecture. Okay, let me uh, take a couple of comments or questions. Perhaps that's why she is also referred to as a Zona. Even if she was raped, there is still that stigma attached to her. Like you're saying, nobody comes out totally clean on this. Everybody has, there's both sides to it. That even if she was raped, they still call her a Zona, that it's... No, they don't call her a Zona. No, they don't call her a Zona. They don't call her a Zona. They say you're treating her like they're saying she's not a Zona, is what they're saying. Your behavior is suggesting she's a Zona, but she is not. By the way, I I would never suggest that in every situation in the world, everybody shares the blame. I mean, yes, it's true, as Heschel said, that to the extent that we live in the world, we, we take some responsibility for the world, but, but there are victims, okay? Heschel's point was, yes, Jewish people were victims of the Nazis and, and victims very often, but we do live in this world, we're part of the world, and to that extent, since we're part of the world, we have an obligation to try to make it better. But there are victims, you know? You're living in some city in Ukraine with your, you know, with your family, and somebody drops a bomb on your house. You're a victim. That's very straightforward. They're not saying that she's guilty. Whether she's guilt, whether her going out is problematic or not, is a good question. But they're not saying she's a zoner. They're saying the opposite. His behavior is suggesting she's a zoner. The way he's going to take money for this. Well, what is she a zoner? You don't take money. The things you don't take any money for. I don't care what the price is. I'm not doing it. And that's the, um, so they're saying the opposite. They're, they're blaming Yaakov. They, they, they're blaming Yaakov and 
Shem, of course, but they're also, I think, who is the he? Shall he treat her like a zona? That's, it's unclear. Is it Shem or is it Shem and Yaakov? I, I think it's both, actually. I don't think they're saying it to him. I think they're saying it to themselves, about him. Anybody else? From one about, the silence, about the silence of the fathers, it seems to me that perhaps the silence of David is actually the, 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 the writer of Samuel is illuminating the, the, the meaning of the silence of Jacob. Um, because in the, in the case of David, David's silence, I think, means I actually set it up. So I'm complicit and I'm not sure exactly how to distribute punishment. And actually with Jacob, he also is complicit because he didn't guard his family. He didn't tell her not to go out. It's not clear that going out is bad in the story. Well, uh, well, he didn't stop right. her from leaving the house. The question yes, is, yes, exactly. He didn't, right, exactly. I, mean, I understand exactly. that, but I'm saying I'm wondering whether that, it's my question, whether going out to see the daughters of the land. I would say something else about David. But, but that's my point. He's hesitating because, 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 because he's introspective. He, does, he doesn't actually, he's, he's not clear how to work out how, how guilt lies. But, I'm not sure about but, guilt. I'm saying I'm not clear about the guilt part of it. I would say something else about David, though, which is not true in the Jacob story. And that is, it's all in the book, but I'll say it anyway. The book is written in not a simple Hebrew, so many people can't read the book. The fact is, here's the point. The story of Amnon and Tamar is chapter 13 of Shmuel Bet. Chapter 11 and 12 of Shmuel Bet is David and Bathsheba. And the problem with David and Bathsheba is a very simple problem. What's he gonna to say to his son? Son, we don't rape women. Oh, really? What did you do two chapters ago? That's, that's, that's not consensual. The king summons her to come. Does she have a choice? I don't think so. The, 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 the Tanakh never suggests that she's guilty in that, in that chapter. He never says anything about Bathsheba. In other words, when you misbehave, it puts you in a situation where you can't actually lecture anybody else. Now, it is true that there were some people going around lecturing all kinds of things, which they themselves are, are guilty in spades. I know such people. That's a separate problem. But, but really, from a moral standpoint, it's very difficult to tell somebody not to do what you could say is, son, I made the same mistake. You shouldn't do it. But the point is that it follows upon, one might say the, that the, the, the tragedy of Avshalom in a certain sense, this is actually a very deep point in Shmuel. The tragedy of Avshalom, which I believe is the real tragedy of the book, because he's the right guy to succeed. The tragedy is that David's inability to, to do the right thing is what creates an Avshalom who ends up in a very bad place. He, he, in the story of Amnon and Tamar, I think he does the right thing. But, but, but beyond that, David's inability to deal with it. And his inability to deal with it is a function of David's own, own, own misbehaviors has put him in a position where it's very difficult for him to be an advisor or kind of an ethical uh, mentor to, to a son who behaves in a, in, a, in a similar fashion, to punish someone who's done what, what he himself has done. And that's the problem of misbehavior that basically anybody with any kind of moral sense feels it's, what am I to tell the other guy? There probably is a way to do it. Don't make the mistake that I made. That's, that you can say that. But it's not so simple to do that. So I think that a little different than the story of Yaakov. 
I'm not convinced that her going out is, is a negative. Um, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It's tough for me to judge. We're not living in that setting. It's true that the text connects it to Leia, and that I think is a negative. Um, I have to stop at this point. If other people have comments, we'll continue next time with chapter 35. Great chapter, actually. There's a lot more to be said about, but we'll start again with 35. Um, and we'll hopefully get up to, um, well, we'll see how far we get next week. I think this is the last class before Pesach. We'll continue after Pesach. Um, we have a whole bunch of things, interesting things for Pesach, starting with uh, 12 o'clock today. He's very interesting. And if you haven't registered, I advise you to do so. I, I find him quite interesting. Um, Noah, you want to pick up and say something? Okay. So first of all, uh, thank you, as always, Rabbi Silver, for a wonderful class. And to everyone here for participating in our learning community, your questions and comments really, really do enrich everything that we're talking about. As Rabbi Silver mentioned, we do have a lot coming up. Uh, the link for our events that is actually at noon Eastern today is in the chat. Uh, if you would like to register and join us, uh, I'm very excited for it and I hope to see many of you there. Uh, we additionally have lots of other Pesach and uh, non-Pesach programming that we will be rolling out, uh, God willing, over the next couple of days. So uh, please make sure to check your emails. We, we do like to be in touch with folks uh, somewhat frequently. We try not to annoy you, but we do want to keep you up on everything that's happening, um, including a, a fun, I shouldn't say fun, a, an interesting music project that will be uh, the first, hopefully of many, uh, a little bit different of a direction for Drisha, but I'm excited for it. And I hope that everyone uh, will enjoy it and get something out of it when that is released very soon. I would say that the music project will be a major initiative. Starting with this, say for the for Pesach, we have a not a tiny project, a little project for the Seder. And then hopefully we will be building on that in different directions. It's the integration of music and, and, uh, and, and liturgy. And that should be, um, I'm very involved in that. It's something I care about very much. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, rolling this thing out and developing it uh, over time. I, th I think it's a, one of the more exciting things we'll be doing. Um, anyway, so we'll. Stay tuned.